Uh, where are we? We are um, partway through the Gospel of Mark, and we are preaching through the Gospel of Mark because we're trying to keep very consciously our eyes on Jesus. Uh, we're going through a turbulent time, somewhat confusing time, certainly an uncertain time, and the disciples, their life with Jesus was exactly like that. They did not know, day to day, what to expect next. And when they did think they'd figured out what Jesus was all about, he would do something that confounded their expectations, surprised them, and confused them all over again, and often terrified them. And we see some of that in this passage. And it's relevant because what Jesus does in our lives is frequently confusing, uh, seems rather strange, doesn't seem like it makes sense, and frankly, it's sometimes quite terrifying. Uh, 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 are we on the right path? Uh, are you sure you know what you're doing, God? Uh, I can't cope. I mean, we all feel like that from time to time, right? Even those of you who aren't nodding. I know internally you really are. So that, this, that we, we can relate to these disciples and what's going on. And it's why we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, because he's taking us somewhere. It's not just about now. It's where we're going here in this world, but also beyond. And so that's why we're trying to keep our, our eyes on Jesus. Now, we are, um, we are um, missing out some bits here in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 6, because we have to do that each week if we're going to focus on one bit. And I have written about that in the Watford Word. Some of them are on the seats, and there's a link to a Google 5 Drive folder where the uh, PDF is of that. So I can give that to you if you don't have it. But what we have after the uh, story from last week about Jairus and, and the woman who was bleeding is Jesus goes home, and you think, great, he goes home, it's nice to go home, and you think, you know, you get a nice welcome, and he doesn't exactly get that back at home. And then he sends out the 12 on a limited mission, and they go out and perform great wonders in his name with his authority. And then we got the story about John the Baptist, which is rather an interesting thing, sort of just suddenly bang, in the middle of chapter 6, we have the story of John the Baptist and how he was beheaded uh, by Herod. And so we've got that right before the feeding of the 5,000. And so we've got a contrast of kings. We've got King Herod acting not like a king of Israel should. And then we've got the true king of Israel feeding God's people. Reminiscent of Moses, reminiscent of, of Exodus, reminiscent of the manna. We've got, we've got all these illusions and ideas going on here. And then... We have the story of the disciples getting in the boat that uh, Joey just read for us so well. So thank you for that. And that's what we're going to focus on here today. So let me tell you what I think is a summary of what's going on here. And then I'll talk about a few bits and pieces and then we'll have some conversation. What we've got here is the struggle of the followers of Jesus uh, to internalize the significance of his abilities, of his identity and his character. I would say that. His disciples are following him. They think he's amazing, but they're struggling to really grasp internally what's really going on here for them personally. What are they really understanding and accepting about who Jesus is in terms of his abilities, his power, you might say, his identity, who he is, and his character. Why does he do that? Why does he treat those people that way and these people that way? It's all to do with Jesus. So we're dealing in this passage, we're looking at with the divine significance of Jesus. Who is he? He's from God, but in what sense? We're dealing with these God-similar powers that he has over water, wind, loaves earlier, and fish in this particular chapter. We're dealing with his compassion, his compassion for 5,000 hungry people. He's got a lot of love for people with even simple basic needs. So he feeds God's people like Yahweh did in the Old Testament. He teaches God's people like God did through the prophets and like people like Moses and Elijah and others. 
He instructs them. He gives them actual food like God did with the manna. And he protects them from enemies. You might see the wind here and the waves as enemies because in Hebrew thought, the sea was a place of chaos and a place where God was in a sense not. And so for, for Jesus to have power over wind and waves indicates, oh, God has even power over this. Here is God protecting us. Why do we have this passage? You know, when, just a tip, you know, when you're reading your Bible, one of the things that helps to bring it alive for yourself personally as you do your own personal Bible study is not just to ask, what does this mean for me? It's a good idea to, to take a step at least or two before that and ask a prior question. And the question could be, why was this written down for the first century church? What did the church get out of it? Why did Mark think, I need to write this down? We think Mark's gospel was based on Peter's from, from uh, some writings by an early Christian writer called, called Papias. This might well be Peter's gospel dictated to Mark or some memories of Peter dictated to Mark, which he then compiled into the gospel. So Mark's writing this down. He doesn't write it down for his own edification. He's not thinking, his writing was jolly hard in those days. It wasn't like typing into a word presser where you get autocorrect and, and, and all that. I mean, it was really, really hard to do. It took a lot of time. Why did he write it down? What did the early church get out of this? And that can help us to think about what we get out of it. But it's an, a useful thing to think about this. The early church had far more practical struggles to live as Christians than you and I do. They lived in a culture and an environment that made living as a Christian dangerous. You were ostracized. You were often ex uh, uh, excluded from family, from certain work positions. How did this help them is one of the questions you might want to ask. We don't have time to look at today. I think also we'll find that hopefully as we uh, dig into the passage, reasons to be patient with one another and perhaps also with God. Uh, it seems that they struggled with uh, being patient. And hopefully we'll be drawn closer to Jesus in our trust of him, our confidence of him, and uh, hopefully our love for him, so that we can be better equipped to make a difference for Jesus in this world, our amazing Jesus. No one like him. So this is where we are. Now, identity. Let's look a, bit, a, bit, a little bit more about that. Identity is a key thing in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, in chapter 4, the other time when we see disciples on a lake, by the way, back in chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm, and that's when he's in the boat with them, and he, he's asleep. If you remember that story? It's in Mark 4. He's asleep, and they wake him up and ask and say, don't you care if we drown? So similar story. And he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. So they've seen this before. And uh, they, he becomes completely calm, and then he asks them why they don't have the faith they need, and they, in verse 41, are terrified. Like in this passage, where they're frightened, thinking they see a ghost. They're terrified. And there, they're terrified, and they ask each other. They don't perhaps dare ask him, but they ask each other, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this? And that's the, a core question going through the Gospel of Mark, asked by various people, Indeed, Pilate asks it later at the, uh, at the trial of Jesus. And of course, the, uh, the key answer is by the centurion at the end of Mark's gospel. When he, the centurion sees Jesus die in Mark 15, 39, and the centurion is not an Israelite, is not a, a God-fearer, but he stands there in front of Jesus seeing how he died, and the centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God. So the, the question is answered at the cross. But all the way through, 
the question continues to be asked. And frankly, I think part of the reason this is written for the early church is I think early Christians sometimes, who was Jesus again? What is, what is the point? What was he? I mean, what is his nature? What is his character? Because when, as you go through life, things challenge our picture of Jesus. We have a picture of Jesus. All of us have a slightly different picture of Jesus. And you might say, no, 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 we're all Christians. We've all got the same picture of Jesus. We definitely don't. Because of our upbringing, what we've read, uh, what's happened in our lives, the people we know, uh, the churches we might have attended growing up or not, the Sunday school songs we learned or didn't, all these things shape our picture, internal picture of Jesus. And so one of the reasons we gather like this and we read the Bible, we study it together and, and personally, is to, is to ever more refine our picture of Jesus to be more accurate. And so I hope today that uh, we can all do that together, get a slightly more accurate, full picture of Jesus. So that's, uh, that's by way of uh, introduction. Let's talk a bit about what's going on. So here, back in chapter 6, uh, Jesus sees the disciples. He dismisses them, telling them to get into the boat. Why does he tell them to get in the boat? Well, perhaps it's because he's got compassion for the uh, crowd and he wants to dismiss them in a personal sense. But he knows the disciples have got to get across the other side. And perhaps because he knows the wind is going to be against them, so he's giving them more time to get there because perhaps he's already decided, I'm going to walk across and it'll be quicker for me. So they need to get rowing and get started because it's going to be, take them a while. So maybe that's what's going on at the beginning there. And, uh, and he, of course, then goes up to, uh, to pray. And he goes up the mountain to pray, reminiscent of many other mountain experiences in the Old Testament where God met his people, like Moses and others. He goes up to pray. And in the late that night, the boat's in the middle of the lake. He's alone on land. He sees them. And one assumes that's uh, an indication of his, uh, his divine powers, that he's able to see them that far and recognize who they are. Uh, he sees them, and they're straining at the oars. And that Greek word can mean tortured. So they are tortured at the oars. So it's not like, I mean, I don't know how many of you have done some, some competitive rowing or anything. It is, it is murder. Rowing might be one of the hardest sports of all. Uh, it's torture. But uh, that's how they're feeling. They are tortured at the oars by what's going on there. The wind's against them. Before dawn, he goes out to them, walking on the lake. He's about to pass by them. Here's the first strange thing to me. He's about to pass by them. He sees them. They're tortured. He's about to pass by. Any thoughts about what's going on here? Why doesn't he give them a hand? I didn't say, hey, chaps, I can sort this out for you. I mean, or at least, even if he doesn't do it miraculously, he could get in and lend his arms to the oars, right? And he was a tough guy. We know that. He was a carpenter. I mean, he was, you know, physically, he was young. He was 33-ish, 32, 31. I mean, he could have got in the boat and given them a hand, but he leaves them there, tortured. You can imagine him walking by and another version of the story and then being like, oi, Jesus, come and give us a hand, at least. But he's about to pass them by. Any idea? I have a theory or two, but I just wondered, you know, any thoughts? Um, why would he just walk past, given his heart and nature? Yeah, Leon. I mean, maybe he wants to get to the boat and see. Okay. Yeah. Want to see him on the water? Wants to see what he's doing. What he's doing? He wants them to believe that he is who he is. Okay, so walking on the water is another demonstration of his powers, maybe his nature. <laughs> And who he is, so maybe that he wants them to see that. Okay, yeah. Any other ideas? It is a bit strange, isn't it? He wants them to ask, to ask 
Okay. All right, yeah, okay, that's a good point. So he's hoping that they will say, ah, you're here, that's great. We need you, please will you come and help us rather than assume and jump in and rescue them or something. Hmm. Any other thoughts? There's also something about the time lapse because it's later that night mm -hmm. and then he sees them straining at the oars and then shortly before dawn he goes down to them. So there's quite right. some time. It, it gives the impression there's quite some time that's passed at that night. Yeah. Um, and I wonder whether there's something about meeting them when by that stage they were physically a lot weaker. Right. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe they wouldn't have welcomed his intervention earlier. Maybe they might not have seen their need for it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Good, yeah. What an interesting thing. Um, I'll give you a couple of thoughts that I gained from some reading and, and so on. Um, <coughs> Passing by is a bit of a phrase from the Old Testament. So God passed by a number of times. And it may be there's an allusion to that right here. For example, um, God passed by his people when he, went to see, he spent time with Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. You may remember, we not that long ago, we're looking at the life of Elijah, and God passes by Elijah in 1 Kings 19. So this passing by idea is something... God, God does to especially his chosen people. So perhaps Jesus is not so much walking past them as manifesting himself as I'm here. And the passing by is not so much a direction, but more a presence, saying I'm not, I'm not interfering, I'm not taking over, I'm just, I'm here for you. And there's a humility in God there. Like with Elijah, God does not come and say, he does kind of tell him off a little bit in 1 Kings 19, but he doesn't come and dominate Elijah. He comes and reveals himself. And maybe it's a bit like that here. And it's Jesus being, I think, very gentle with the disciples. He's not jumping in the boat and rebuking them and sorting it all out. He's saying, you know, I'm, I'm with you here. I may be out on the, on the water walking on it, but I'm passing by in the same way the divine presence often did that in the, in the Old Covenant. He's, God was granting his people a revelation of his presence, and perhaps that's what's going on here with Jesus. Perhaps there's an allusion to Moses and Elijah. Both Moses and Elijah crossed a water barrier. Uh, they walked on dry land through water. Jesus is walking on it. Maybe that's a whole nother level. We're saying, oh, it's more than Moses, more than Elijah, the two most revered, most revered Israelites um, of, of that day. So Jesus then does join the disciples because they see him, they think he's a ghost, they cry out, and he does join them and tells them to take courage. Um, and he, uh, he gets into the boat. They are afraid. They think he's a ghost. It's interesting, they, it, it says they cry out, but not they cry out because they think they're seeing a ghost, but they cry out because they saw him and were terrified. So I think the implication is, it must be a ghost, what else could be walking on the water? And then, no, hang on, it's not a ghost, it's Jesus, and that terrified them. 
which is really interesting. And again, it ties into this idea of their picture of Jesus was not accurate. It shouldn't have terrified them if they really knew who Jesus was already. And shouldn't they know? They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him feed 5,000 people just before this. And yet they're still terrified by the presence of Jesus. It's a strange thing. It's different. It's different. Say a bit more about that. <laughs> well, it's different because they don't know this capacity. They don't know all of them. All of them. Yeah. They did. They kept seeing different things, more things, over and over, building a picture. All right. Like all of us are still building our picture of Jesus. We are. Uh, so he gets into the boat, and we have his only words in the passage, and this I think is very significant, because sometimes we see a lot of Jesus speaking, not often, but sometimes we have a whole incident, and we have almost nothing said by Jesus. So the fact that it's written down must be important, and his words are, Take courage, a reassurance, it is I. Don't be afraid, instruction. So we've got uh, some instruction, we've got some reassurance, we've got it is I. Doesn't that make you think about the way God designates himself? The I am, it is I. That's all you need to know. I, I am enough. And so he gets into the boat with that reassurance, with that um, emphasis of his identity, and some compassion here. All right, and it, the wind dies down, and they are completely amazed. So they're terrified, they're amazed. There's very strong emotions going on uh, right here. They're amazed. And then, perhaps the key part for the disciples in this passage, they'd not understood about the loaves. They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Um, they've just had the feeding of the 5,000. You would think that they had understood the connection perhaps with uh, Moses, um, with God of the Old Testament, and that this is amazing and wonderful, but they still haven't, it hasn't all clicked yet. We can forgive them, of course, because they're human like us, and we miss things all the time about God, even though he's done astonishing things in us and around us. We also have to bear in mind that they would wrestle with this because they were Jews, and of course they were very um, staunchly monotheistic, and the idea of God manifesting himself in flesh was something that was going to take them a bit of time to get their head around, as you can imagine. Uh, we, we also can forgive them because we know how the story ends. We've got Mark chapter 15 and chapter 16. They didn't have that. And so when you don't see how it all turns out, it's harder sometimes to interpret accurately what's going on when some confusing things are happen, happening in life. So we can forgive them, and we're no different in many ways. But they'd missed the point that the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't primarily about feeding hungry people. There is that, and it was part of the compassion of Jesus, but it wasn't mainly about that. It was mainly the feeding of the 5,000. It was mainly about his identity as being the one providing what God, God's people needed from a, with a, a divine calling to that. Right, so I'm going to make some application in a little bit. What I'd like us to do for a minute now here is, is perhaps turn to the person next to you and just talk a little bit about how your picture of Jesus has changed. How has your picture of Jesus changed over the years? A few things that come to me from this passage I'll just briefly mention. Firstly, 
I'm impressed with how patient Jesus is with the disciples. I, I, you know, they've been with him for some time. They've seen him do astonishing things. They still get terrified at the kind of wrong things, miss the point, don't understand. I, I really like the way that Jesus is clear with them and he gives them instruction, take courage, don't be, you know, it is I, don't be afraid. I mean, he's it's clear about that, but he's not, he's not down on them. He's not like, I've wasted my time with you, idiots. I, what, why did I pick you? I should have picked 12 others. It, it, and I think that's really important for us because if you're as human as I am, then there are times when you feel like, I don't know why God wanted me to be a follower of Jesus. I'm a rubbish Christian. I, I don't match up. I don't measure up. I, I, I make, you know, I promised God I would never do that and I've done it again and, you know, sins and things. And, but yet Jesus is so patient as he continues to reveal more of who he is, which helps us to be transformed more like him. But the two things go together. We don't get the transformation without the greater understanding of who he is. Oh, that's who you are. Okay, so I can move a bit more in this direction towards you. I think that's how that kind of thing works. But I, I am so impressed with his patience, which also tells me I must be patient with myself. Right? I, I should not be holding myself to a standard Jesus does not hold me to. Yes, if I'm not growing over a long period of time, there's something fundamentally wrong. Repentance is needed. But patience is part of the package when you're a follower of Jesus. And it reminds me, we need to be patient with each other. We're at different stages of our faith. We're at different stages of our understanding of Jesus. And sometimes it's tempting to think, oh, if only they had more faith, they wouldn't have this problem in their life, in their parenting, in their marriage, in their whatever it is, right? And we can get judgmental and we can get negative. Now, to ask the question may be fair. How is your faith helping you with that challenge? But to judge people when they're, they're at a different place in their understanding of Jesus and growth into Christ, that's not helpful. So God's patient with us. Let's be patient with ourselves and let's be patient with one another. It's one thing I see from just the character of Jesus more than what he does in detail uh, uh, here. I second, think the second thing is a little bit allegorical, but I think it's fair, which is it's sometimes helpful to identify where the wind is against you and where is Jesus in that. And I don't think that's the core of the passage here. I don't want to claim that. But I do think that in the wind, God had a purpose in the, in the wind here. He had a purpose in sending them out when they were already tired to row all night. There was a purpose in it. There was something he was trying to do and help them with. And sometimes when the wind is against you and I in our lives, there's a reason he's not far off. He might not be in the boat exactly, but he's near enough nearby. And will you invite him into the boat? Will you ask him for, for the help? Will you trust him? Because we have to go through the wind, uh, the difficulties to grow and, and learn. That's one part of what it's like. I'm going through this growing spurt, well, spurt, no, growing, growing pains at the moment, going back to uh, study. As some of you will know, I've taken on uh, a new course <clears throat> to study at the London School of Theology where I'm doing my master's in theological studies. And, oh, it's making my brain hurt. Ah, <laughs> uh, these books, they're all like twice as thick as this and really dense and an Im a mountain of reading and a mountain of things to do and it's making me frustrated and angry at myself that I'm not getting through it quicker and understanding it I should be understanding this why aren't, can't I get it in my head you know and I, I, I this but there's a there's a reason for the struggle there has to be um, 
I'll tell you more another time, but I realized that I'd forgotten. I don't have time. No, anyway, there's a struggle. I'll tell you more about that another time. Um, well, Pat's not back with the communion. Okay, well, until she comes back with communion, I suppose I can carry on. Um, no, it's just to say that the struggle is meant to bring us to an awareness we don't already have. There's something I'm not aware of, right? So the, I'm doing the master's not to struggle, but, but doing that is, is a struggle. And it's partly to learn things, and, and that'll be useful for me and for us as a church, I hope, and others. But in the struggle, there's a purpose. And I realized, as I was last week doing all this reading and trying to get my head around it and write answers to questions and prepare for the seminar on Friday, that I was just getting really frustrated and angry. And then I remembered that in 2008, the last time I was engaged in serious study like this, I was also struggling, and I had an appointment with an educational psychologist and um, we spent a lot of time together, and she wrote a report on, my, on me, and it turns out I'm dyslexic. And I'd never known that before, and it didn't really help me that much at the time because I was, I'd almost finished my studies, so it was nice to know, but I didn't really help particularly. It was a bit too late. And then I kind of forgot about it and got on with life. And although I've read some challenging things and studied a few things since then, but I'm not, not on that level, I, it hasn't felt like that much of an issue for me until I start the Masters. And I'm like, this is like, I'm, I'm walking through treacle here. This is how it feels. And I thought, oh, hang on, I forgot about that report. So I went back and read it and I thought, oh, that's right, I'm dyslexic. And it's something I realized I hadn't talked much about and hadn't engaged with and indeed hadn't embraced because I felt a bit, of a, a bit ashamed about it. There's no logic to this, there's no rational logic, but there was something in me that did not want to acknowledge that I have a weakness. And this is a disciple thing, isn't it, following Jesus? We don't like to admit we have a weakness. And part of the reason we don't grow is because we're, we're not willing to say, Jesus, I really need you right now. I, I really want to be more like you, but I'm struggling here. And to spend that time in prayer and whatever it takes, so that we can grow. And of course, as soon as I embraced this last week, oh yeah, I am dyslexic. And I started to do research and read things and watch YouTube videos and talk to people who can relate to this, including a friend of mine in the Thames Valley Church who's a bit of an expert in this and, and engage with the disability teacher at the, at, at the London School of Theology and talk to uh, and connect with a charity for dyslexia. All of a sudden, oh, you could try this software, or you could try this hardware, or you could try this technique, and then there's this, and then there's this, and I'm like, there's a lot of help out there. And I tried some of it this week in its early days, but it's made a difference already. And I don't feel as fearful, anxious, frustrated, angry uh, as I did a few days ago. And there's something about that willingness to embrace our weakness that we need if Jesus is gonna do his work in us, if we're going to grow. And I feel optimistic, I feel faithful, I feel hopeful that I can get through this master's. I'm not saying it'll be easy, but I feel like now, where a week ago, I thought, I just don't think I can do this. I seriously nearly quit. And the frustration was, if I can say this, I think I'm intelligent enough. I don't think it's that. It's not the IQ. It's that I can't process what I'm reading, what I'm learning. I can't process it. It's just like mud in my hand, all muddy, and I can't process it. And I got stuck and I thought, I'll, I'll have to quit. But a bit more openness, uh, a bit more embracing of the reality and a bit more 
uh, can anybody help? Oh, well, a few days later, and it feels completely different. And there's a certain thing about, you know, their hearts are hardened. That's a really serious thing, it says in this passage. And there's, we can be, um, we can give them some grace because they're human, like all of us. But, but isn't it a sad thing if Jesus was to say to any of us, you could grow a lot more. I know the wind's against you, but there's a reason. And then we say, well, I don't know if I can do this, you know. And, and we forget it's Jesus calling us to get into the boat. It's Jesus calling us to row across the lake. It's Jesus who's allowing the wind against us. It's Jesus who can see it and whose presence is with us. Maybe there's something there. And I wonder if for any of us that have any, you know, the wind against us right now. Is there a, a way in which you could open up your hearts to, to God, to one another, to the fellowship, to, to God's word, uh, in prayer, to find a way to, to have that heart of openness to let Jesus help you grow? Mm-hmm.